0: As we begin this morning, I just want to take a couple of moments to have us reflect on Christmas in America, 2023. I mean, it's kind of a hodgepodge, isn't it? I mean, if some alien came from outer space to the United States of America and looked around at what's going on, uh, do you think they would understand the significance of that time? It's kind of really a a hodgepodge of, of events the simple story of a Jewish virgin giving birth to the Son of God, Jesus, the God of the universe, the promised Messiah. We have Christmas, we have the real story, and we have traditions, and we have myths all scrambled together. It's amazing how far off we have, have gotten. I just want to think about one aspect of the Christmas season in America. That's our decorations. You ever think about how we decorate for Christmas? Uh, yesterday evening, on a nice 55 degree Saturday night in December, we walked around our neighborhood. I'm going to show you just a couple of pictures of, of what we saw. I mean, if you go to Princeton Estates, where we live, uh, I wish I could have shown you the whole story because those lights flash. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I didn't live across the street from them. It'd be hard, kind of hard to fall asleep at night. And then, if you think I'm exaggerating the next one, I really. The picture just doesn't do it justice. It's on Effingham Street, if you want to go see it. You can ask um, um, Matt and April where it is. I mean, this is from one angle. I couldn't get the whole thing. And my daughter, who does live across the street, said they're not, they're not finished building the scene. I mean, there are multiple Santa Clauses. I mean, there are all kinds of creatures that are flying around. There's, there is a nativity scene in, in the front. And up above the garage, you can't really see it, but it's got the number of seconds left days hours and seconds left until midnight on christmas and then there's our shopping the money that we spend on christmas i have these figures got them online i know we don't always believe what we get on online but this is the best i could find it said that in the united states last year we bought 32 million christmas trees and it said that if you would lay them all down one by one and ten it would cover 46,600 miles. According to Dave Ramsey, he gave us some figures on money that was spent. This one just blew my mind. Americans spent $886.7 billion last year. And if you do the math and divide the population of the United States into that figure, that means the average person in America got $3,800 worth of gifts. All I'll say is, the Winter family lowered that, <laughs> that that number substantially. And to think that it all started with a little baby born in a stable across the ocean. The time when Mary and Joseph saw for the first time God in the flesh. That's the Christmas story. But I have a question. Did, did it really begin there? Or did it start a long time earlier? would suggest to you that the incarnation, the the Christmas story started centuries, if not eternity before that. I mean, how many people have we met to think that Christmas is the beginning of the story? The truth is the story has no beginning. The story is an eternal one. As God, Jesus always existed, that for a brief time, for about 30 years, he lived and dwelt among us. I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. This is the key text that I want to unlock these next two Sunday mornings. And I want to tell you that typically, as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, we go verse by verse. This is not an expository kind of message. This is kind of, I call it a a theological, historical message. And I think it's very important. This verse sounds so very simple. But there's so much truth in in these few words. I don't want to leave anything out, so I'm going to ask you if you would read with me, in in your Bibles or on the screen. Let's read together. Galatians chapter four, and verse four. Ready? But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. You see what Paul is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the completion of a process that began in eternity past. And the best that we can understand from this text is that his arrival on planet Earth as a human being happened at precisely the right time, in precisely the right place. In that moment, the gush of birth from the womb of Mary, and then the baby coming out with his loud cry, God was born in human flesh. But it didn't just suddenly happen. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't the last-minute plan of God the Father. The baby coming, God in the flesh, born in a manger, was the fullness of a plan that God had made in eternity past. You see, God was at work sovereignly, consistently, behind the scenes. No message was heralded by angels centuries earlier. God didn't come weeks, months, years in advance saying, pay attention, earth, listen up, baby's coming. It came very quietly, very humbly. I found this story, it's rather long, but I'd like to read it to you. Jay Kessler, who used to be president of Taylor University, wrote a book, and he described the analogy of Jesus' birth to the building of a car at Ford Motor Company. And I chose this because when I was in college, I worked on the assembly line at Ford. I lasted a whole three weeks before I decided that that is not the job for me. But here's the story he writes. He said, most people when they think of Christmas think of camels, swaddling clothes, and a manger. But I think of a Ford Motor plant. One year I toured a plant and I watched them assemble cars. It was an eye-opener. I always had the idea that Ford just guessed how many cars they needed and made that many. They decided to make green cars one day and they made two, three thousand of them and then they would switch to some other color. But of course, that's not the way they do it. All over America, people walk into dealerships, look around, kick a few tires, order a car, a certain model with specific equipment, color, roof, and accessories. The dealer makes the order, it's placed with Ford, In one city, they make the correct transmission. In another city, they make the vinyl roof. In another, the mirrors. All of these places start feeding their products toward the Ford plant. The Ford plant has a man who puts on steering wheels. The cars come down the line, and when the green cars come, you can bet he doesn't get a red steering wheel to put on. At exactly the right time, green steering wheels are there. He reaches out, grabs one, sticks it on. That's what happened with each part, the mirrors, the roof and the seat covers. And I will say for three weeks, I was the door gasket man around the the front door. Now, if a man is capable of designing such an ingenious system to bring thousands of events and people together with precision timing just to make a car, and here's the point, imagine what God could do to prepare his son for this earth. He says, that's what I think of Christmas. The number of things that God brought together at one time In one place, it's so incredible that it makes the Ford plant look like a corner gas station. Here's the the punchline. Some people have the idea that Jesus was a remedial action, sort of a last-minute Band-Aid stuck on a wounded world. God had tried everything else, so he decided to try his son. But the Bible says Jesus came in the fullness of time. When everything was as fully prepared for him as possible, all the pieces of history fell together. The preparation of God for Christmas is staggering. Now, if you're a parent, an older parent or a younger parent, can you remember how you prepared for the birth of your first child? Wanted to make sure everything got together, right? You had to set up the nursery, you had to get the crib, had to get all the things you needed, I'm sure it all would look just right and be ready. And if that's what you did, how much more would God, the Father, make sure that everything is right for the birth of his son? So I want you to look at that phrase again in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, the pleroma to chrono. I'm going to give you a Greek pronunciation le- lesson today. Okay? we're going to have you say that. The playrono, why well, better I say it right? Playroma, cranu. So, can we say that together? Pleroma to cranu. Playroma, fullness, the completion, the end of a project. The planning and the preparation was done. Chronos, I hope you recognize, it's a good English word. It's time. We have chronology. Event, following another event, and another event. It came in order. It means time or era. The development, the completion of an era. The coming of a time. If ever I I wrote a paraphrase, which I never planned to do, by the way, my paraphrase of the first half of this verse would be something like this. When the full number of days and events had run their course, at the precise moment that God had planned, From eternity past, he gave his son to enter the human race. That's his plan. So what I want to do is I want to step back and and look a little bit into theology and a little bit into history to show you what God did to make the world ready for the birth of his son. I have five things that I want to point out. First of all, I want to talk about the religious preparation. So you're unzipping the curtain looking behind the stage. I see a religious preparation. And to see that, I invite you to find with me a passage out of the book of Lamentations. Lamentations. It might take you four or five minutes to find it, but it's right there. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Now, the women's Bible study and the men's Bible study, we've we've looked at Lamentations a little bit. Let me remind you, Lamentations is associated with the prophecy of Jeremiah. 52 chapters where Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, warned Israel about their idolatry. And if you didn't, didn't turn back to the Lord, you're going to go into captivity. And he pleaded with them like no other prophet pled. And yet they rejected his message. They thumbed their noses at God. And Jeremiah wept as Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire came into the area of Palestine and destroyed the nation. It began what we call in history the Babylonian captivity. And there were the Jewish people who loved their freedom, now forced to live as aliens, hostages, captives in a foreign land. So in, in Lamentations, Jeremiah is writing his lament. That's how it gets its name. It's Lamentations, Lamentations five chapters of sadness because of God's discipline. Look at how it begins in chapter 1, verse 1. Jeremiah cries, How lonely sits the city that was full of people! How like a widow she has become! She who is great among the nations, she who is the princess among the provinces has become a slave. Now, to help you picture this, try to think about what it would be like if this were America. Think about this in, in, in our terms. Look at verse 2. It says, She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Talking about Jerusalem. All, among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations and finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. Just think of as an illustration of what they experienced. Think of what happened in World War II. I read about what took place when Nazi Germany conquered, defeated France. when The city of Paris fell. And there was a picture that I, I, I couldn't really get my hands on to show you of The French population in Paris, weeping as the swastika was raised on one of their hotels. That's what's happening here. That's what happened in Judah. They're marched out of their country. They're brought to Babylon, of all places, where they're to live under the boot of a Babylonian godless people. I want to flip over from Lamentations, flip back to Psalm 137. Psalm 137 picks up the same theme. Whoever wrote this psalm was an eyewitness to the fall of Jerusalem. And here he writes, forlorn, broken, in Babylon, as a dust-displaced person. I'll I'll try to read it like I think it felt. The psalmist said, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept, When we remembered Zion on the willows there, we hung up our, our liars. It's it's an instrument for there. Our captors required us of songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of your songs. O Zion, see like hostages, they were being mocked. Let's hear it for good old Zion. Why don't you sing out now about how great your God is? Imagine that happening. If we were captive in America, Okay, you Americans, why did you sing the Star Spangled Banner? They were being mocked. Let's hear it for good old America. Let, they're saying, let why don't you sing the hymns of the Hebrews now? Do it in harmony. Sing it with joy. Psalm 137 forces, they wept. See, the seeds of the incarnation of God were planted in the soil of of Babylon, where the Jews were brought down to their knees, forced to live in a different culture with a different language, separated from their homeland, having seen the destruction of their city, and even more importantly, the destruction of the temple. And they learned a lesson that began to help them be ready for the coming of Messiah. So what are, what are the lessons? What did, they, what did they learn in captivity Well, if you study it carefully, you will see that there are at least three lessons that Israel learned that prepared them centuries in advance. To begin with, in Judaism, from that point all the way through to now, they became monotheistic. In their history, they were very much involved in idolatry, right? Baal and some of the other gods. From the captivity on, they were... Monotheists. now they may not believe in God at all, but they didn't ever get back into the habit of worshiping idols. They learned their lesson. Furthermore, there was the development, at least the beginning part, of the Old Testament canon, the Old Testament scriptures. At the end of the captivity under Ezra, that scribe and some of the prophets, they began to filter out good literature from inspired writing. And by and by, that scriptural canon, we call it, the Old Testament scriptures began to be revered and studied and listened to and recognized as the word of God. And then from that time of captivity, there are the emergence of synagogues. Up until then, the only worship, official worship, was in the temple. But now they're forced because there was no temple, to gather together in smaller groups wherever they were. In captivity, synagogues came into existence. And you realize what was going to happen four, five, six centuries later? Where would the first messengers of the gospel go when they went into a city? They'd come to the synagogues, the place where the gospel could be proclaimed. You see, from Israel, we learn an important lesson for ourselves. Pain teaches us. It brought the Hebrews to their knees. It made them look up to the God whom they should be worshiping, Yahweh, Elohim, the God of heaven and earth. And it caused them to revere the scriptures that they had disobeyed. It brought them together in groups to fellowship together. Uh, Malcolm Muggeridge wrote this. and It's a, a lesson, I think, that I, I can vouch for in my own life. He says, as an old man looking back on one's life, it's one of those things that strikes you most forcibly. That the only thing that's taught one anything is suffering. You don't learn, he says, not success, not happiness, not anything like that. The only thing that really teaches one what life is all about, the joy of understanding, the joy of coming in contact with what life really signifies, is suffering. We learn in suffering. I not just stop here. Are you learning that? You that are suffering? you that are going through hard times, are you learning to know the only one who gives us genuine hope? When you feel crushed, broken, confused, are you learning from that time of pain, moments of your affliction? The prophet Nahum says his way is where? In the whirlwind and the storms and the clouds are the feet, are the dust, of his feet. These Jews learn from suffering. When the fullness of the time came, when the opportunity opened up, God gave his son. And part of that process in being ready was recognizing who God was. Beginning at the time of captivity. Now the second one may not seem quite so important, but I want to talk a little bit about transportation. It wasn't long before God judged the Babylonians. And he used the Medo-Persian Empire to be his next preparation of preparation for the birth of Christ. In the book of Ezra, it begins by God moving in the heart of King Cyrus to issue a decree to allow all the exiled Jews to return back to their homeland. And there he re, then he released the captives, allowing them to return. But the Persian Empire made another contribution to what was going to take place in the future. They were the first people to build regular roads. I mean, think interstate highway system. They they made roads that connected three continents. They connected Asia with Europe and, and Africa. Three continents built many new roads. They also the first country to actually develop a postal service. The roads facilitated communication. They were u- their roads were used by merchants and politicians and armies. And the most famous was, was a royal road that went from Susa, the capital, and traveled 1,500 miles to the Aegean Sea. And then it said that they, had, they fought ahead and they had s- stations for their horses every 15 or 20 miles, so that they can could, could relax and, and, and take some time in the travel there. So what? I mean, you're not here to listen to a history lesson this morning, but what did what good did that do? Well, let me suggest to you that because those roads were built, they were routes that enabled the apostles and Paul to go and to travel. Easily, from place to place, connecting the major cities in Asia and in Europe. God orchestrated his building project to prepare his transportation system so the gospel could be more easily spoken and declared. And there's a cultural preparation. If you remember your ancient history class and in school and dust off some of those books, you'll find that there was a period of time of 400 years that we call the intertestamental period, the the dark time when there's no prophet giving us the word of God. And in that so-called dark time, there arose in Macedon, in, in, in Greece, a man named King Philip II. He had a son, became a very famous leader, a brilliant son, who literally had ruling the world in his mind. His name was Alexander, and he desired to conquer the world. And 12 years later, he pretty much conquered the western part of the world. And he died in his early 30s, a a young man. One historian writes of him, he says, So significant and so permanent was the influence of the conquest of Alexander that the whole entire world became Greek. Now listen. Greek it was, in culture, in philosophy, in its institutions, its art, its architecture, its patterns of life, and especially its language. It was Alexander the Great that said, if, if you're under my rule, you're learning Greek, whether you want, want to or not. See, he gave this confused world with different cultures. He says, we want to communicate. We're going to communicate in the same language. And since I am the conqueror, you're going to learn my language. And the world became Greek in in every way. And what that did, in 280 B.C., there was a group of Hebrew scholars who gathered together and translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. Why'd they do that? Because so many Jews didn't speak Hebrew anymore. They want to know the scriptures, they would read it in, in Greek, Septuagint, refers to the number of of 70 who did this. And it was the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used by Jesus and by by the apostles and by the writers of the New Testament. Now, I thought to myself, do you think that Alexander knew what he was doing right then? Do you think he knew that he was actually being used by God? See, when when the New Testament was written, it was in Koine Greek. And to this day, It's well known that the original text in our Bibles in the New Testament was in Koine Greek. All that is done in preparation, the fullness of God, that great moment. Alexander thought he was conquering the world. Alexander was preparing the world to hear the gospel of Christ. In fact, he was simply a pawn in God's sovereign hand. And then there's the political scene. Now, if you love history, some of you do and some of you don't, but the political scene for the coming of Christ is so ripe. Now, to us very proud Americans, we think that history rises and falls in Washington, D.C., and there's no more important room than the Oval Office of the White House. But that's a fact for today. There was a time in history There was a little boot-shaped nation in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea that was the nerve center of the world. It's the city where emperors sat and where emperors ruled. If you wanted vast kingdoms, worldwide kingdoms, uh, the Roman Empire would qualify. You could find you could go to the west and went to the Atlantic. You could go to the north and went up to the British Isles. You could go to the east and you end up at the Euphrates River In Asia, in the south, you go down to the Sahara Desert. A vast kingdom, or three continents, much of what we call the the Western world. It was under the the disciplined, strict rule of Rome that there came to be what in Latin is the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Yep, it was enforced peace, but it was, was peace. Rome virtually eradicated piracy from the seas and robbery from the streets. And in doing that, God prepared the world for the walking, the travel in the writing of the scriptures. Persian roads, Greek language, and Roman peace in their travel. And at this time, one of these roads went from northern Palestine, to southern Palestine. And here we have Luke chapter 2. So take your Bibles. Now let's get to the Christmas story in chapter 2 of Luke. Every research, done his homework, Luke gives us some political information. Luke gives us a lot of historical details to show the the accuracy of the story. And he talks about, let's look at chapter 2 and verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus the August, the great czar, king, that all the rule should be, all the world should be registered. The the Roman Empire, there's going to be a government edict given by the king. Verse two, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke includes all these names that are difficult to pronounce. He, puts, he helps us put all together the, the background. These are historical, political events that took place, but fit perfectly into the prophetic plan that God had revealed. In verse 3, it says, And all the world went to be registered, each to his own town. So you know the story. Here we had a couple that was living up north in, in Nazareth. And Mary is, what, eight, eight and a half, eight and three quarter months? pregnant. She'd married her, her husband after becoming pregnant. Joseph, as you know, had nothing at all to do with the pregnancy. He's as confused as anyone could be. All he knew is that an angel said, what is in the womb of your betrothed, Mary, is from the Spirit of God. And he believed it. He believed it. So out of the blue, here comes an edict from Rome that says you need to go down to Nazareth. He makes a decree. You have to go from Nazareth, you have to travel down these roads, down south to your ancestral home, back to the city of Bethlehem. And that he would have to do that. And for whatever reason, probably she didn't want to be alone, Mary went with him. What a perfect plan. God's plan was, no, my son's not going to be born in Nazareth. How is he going to get down to to Bethlehem? We're going to use the Caesar to do that. Perfect plan. That's, That's what excites me about this. All these little things God's putting together to weave the perfect plan that he has made in eternity past. I don't want you to miss that. Now, I want us to look in a different place. Seven hundred years before this, there was a prophet named Micah, and I'm kind of guess, and I'm sarcastic right now. I'm going to kind of guess Caesar Augustus didn't ever read Micah. It would be a fair thing? He, and he wouldn't have cared had he read that. The only thing he was thinking about was more taxes. I mean, he's a government. More tax. How can I get? How can we get more funds? But what he was doing was fulfilling the prophet we spoke seven hundred years earlier. And in Micah chapter 5, in verse 2, it says this. He says, but you, O Nazareth, right? O Bethlehem, Ephrata, you're too little. You're such a small little village to be among the clans of Judah. But from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. What's that saying? His birth isn't the beginning. He's from ancient times. He's from eternity. He's been here forever. Therefore, he shall give them up unto the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand, in the shepherd his flock, and the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God, and they shall dwell secure For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Not Pax Romana, but Pax God. The peace of God. You know what that tells me? That the great Caesar Augustus was like a piece of lint on the page of your history books. He's looking for taxation. God's preparing the world. I mean, I, I love stuff like this. We see the sovereign hand of God. And we are nothing more than gloves in the hand of God. That's why I love these old, some of these old hymns. One old hymn goes this way. God moves in a mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footstep on the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds have never faintly skilled. He works together his bright design and works his sovereign will. At exactly the right time. In the play Roma to Cranu, the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son. So let's summarize it. The Pax Romana kept them safe as they traveled the Persian roads. The Persian roads meant that they could travel more quickly from place to place. The language that was now used, they didn't have to have what so many missionaries have to do is learn a new language to preach the gospel. They spoke Greek. They were able to talk. Thanks to Alexander, thanks to the plan of God. And the Hebrews were more ready than ever because they'd gone through the awful time of captivity. And there was a longing. You can read, there was a longing in these centuries for the coming of Messiah. I left the best one for last. The biblical, the scriptural preparation. Micah 5 is far from the only passage in scripture that talks about the coming of Messiah. It's just one of many. As a matter of fact, you know what Jesus said? He said on the road to to Emmaus, he said, all of the Old Testament, all of the law and the prophets and the Psalms speak about me. And in Genesis, he's presented as what? The seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, he's, he's the brazen serpent lifted up on the pole. Remember, Jesus uses that in, in John. He, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him, this is the good part, whoever believes in him may have what? Everlasting life. That's John three fourteen and 15. And then comes... The verse that you know, but starts with the brazen serpent. In the in the book of Deuteronomy, he's the prophet that's been promised. In Joshua, he's our unseen captain. In Judges, he is the ultimate deliverer. And Ruth, he's the kinsman, redeemer. And Samuel, in, in Chronicles, he is the promised king. And Ezra and Nehemiah, he's the restorer of the nation. And Esther, he's, he's our advocate. In Job, he is what? He is my redeemer. Remember what, what Job said? He said, I know my redeemer lives. And that on that last day, he's going to stand on the earth. And even though my flesh might be destroyed, yet in my flesh, I'm going to do what? I'm going to see God. That's a profound word that's thousands of years old. In Psalms, he's our shepherd. He's our all in all. In Proverbs, he's he's our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's our goal. In the Song of Solomon, he's the one whom we love. And in all of the prophets, he's the coming prince of peace. The whole Old Testament story makes us ready for the coming of Messiah. So Paul writes in Galatians, When the fullness of the time had come, when the precise time came, God sent forth his son. The world was ready religiously and politically and, and culturally. had some roads. God moved at the right time, at the right moment, at the right place. It was God's time, the perfect time for the coming of Messiah. It's only half a verse. We're coming back next week and finishing the story. But I want to make sure before we finish, what does that have to do with you? What does it have to do with me? What difference does it make in in Kentwood, Michigan in in 2023? Let me ask you this question. Uh, Do you think you're an accident? Do you think your arrival on planet Earth was a decision that maybe maybe you were an accident, your parents called you, you were an accident in their family? if you were an accident, you're the only accident that has ever happened. God doesn't know anything about accidents. You think you just happened to be on planet Earth today? You, you, you think there's no reason that you came this morning to, to, to Kentwood Baptist Church to hear this message? I mean, I'd like to say a, a word that maybe we not ought to say from the pulpit, but I'll say, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. God is, God is in control. I don't know where you stand now in relationship to Christ, but he wanted you to understand this story, the story that God has been working on for eternity past that finally came to place in Bethlehem. The son of David, the God of the universe, became flesh. That's the foundation of of the gospel. You're here because he wants to make sure you understand who Jesus was and what God was doing so that we would understand who his son was. So I don't know where you stand, but maybe for some of you it's the time for your second birth, your your new birth. You're here and you're alive. You're physically alive. Without Christ, you're spiritually dead. You're separated from, from God. You're on your way to eternal judgment. And I'm here this morning to tell you that God planned for the coming of his son, brought him at the right time, not just to live, but we'll see next week he brought him not just to live, but also to do what? To die. To die on the cross. To shed his blood for your sin. And all of the events of history, just like a glove on the hand of of God. So maybe it's time for you to say, wow, God did that for me? I want to come and to trust in the one who gave his life for me. Simply, the Bible makes it clear that coming to know God is simply an act of your faith. Recognizing your rebellious heart, your unworthiness, the depths of your sin, and believing that what Christ did for you in giving his life, coming here to set aside all of the prerogatives he had in heaven, coming to this earth so that he could die for your sin. We're going to conclude in just a minute with a song that's going to end. Come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There's room in my heart for you. And I trust this morning that that will be a decision, if you don't know Christ, that you may make. If you do know the Lord, just an opportunity this morning to thank God for the way he worked in putting his plan into being way before Christmas Eve. Let's bow together and let's pray.